We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something that both started before us and reaches beyond us. This summer, we look to the entire Bible to see God's mission in the world and how He calls His people to join Him in it. As we as a church look to beginning a new congregation, we turn towards the scriptures to see how God moves us out on mission. Join us this summer for a missional conversation. All right, kids ages uh, three through pre-K can head down to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, um, if you'd open your Bible, we're in uh, John chapter 17 this morning. John's in the New Testament, it's the, the fourth book of the New Testament. As you are uh, turning there, if you don't have a Bible with you, the text is in your, in your order of worship, in your bulletin. If you don't own a Bible, there are some on the back table we'd love to give you. That's our gift to you. But uh, it's, it's going to be good for you to have the text in front of you. We, we practice in this church what's called um, expository preaching, which is like a little bit of a different uh, thing. It's where we actually take the text, the, the Bible that we're gonna, I'm going to read in a minute, the passage I'm going to read, we're actually going to kind of break it down and walk through it. Um, it might be different from some of the things you've uh, come to expect from, from preaching, but um, our hope is that God's Word will do its work in us as we, as we do that. So let me remind us what we're doing. We've been spending this summer taking a look at uh, what theologians call the Missio Dei, which is, um, look man, if, if you want to sound smart, you just say something in Latin and all of a sudden it sounds great. Uh, it just means the mission of God. Uh, it, but here's the thing, we've, we've been doing this under the, under the conviction that seeing God on mission is not an isolated thing in the Bible. That is, it's in fact the entire scope of the Bible, it's, it's part of the central thread of the story that the Bible tells, the grand narrative of the scriptures, that God is working to redeem his broken and fallen creation, broken uh, because of us, because we're broken and fallen. And that he has determined that this is going to happen not apart from people, but through people. Because the problem came about, brokenness came about through people, that he's going to enact his will to redeem it through people as well. And so we are on mission with him. Last week, uh, Jason Bailey showed us Jesus' mission statement. You remember that? That he came to seek and to save what was lost. Um, This week we build on that because Jesus now is going to tell us here in John 17 that he came to seek and save what was, what was lost, and now he is sending us as he was sent. So if you have your place in John 17, if you'd stand, that's our habit here in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading verses 13 through 20. Oh, we'll go through 21. This is God's word to us. Hear it in that way. This is Jesus speaking. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them, guard them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe through their word, that they may be one just as you, Father, and me, and I, and you, 
and they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, over this time, we ask your blessing. That you would come and that you would work. Lord, you know where I'm at and what's going on in my own heart and life uh, this week and this morning. Lord, I pray that you would meet us exactly where we are. That Jesus, that you would communicate to us the motive and the means of this mission, which is all in you. And that, Lord, you would, by your Spirit, open our hearts to hear from you this morning. Let Christ and his cross come to the forward. Let uh, the one who speaks follow the wayside, Lord. You alone hold the words of eternal life. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So I just got back from vacation. Most of you will know that. Um, I'm thankful that the the elders here give me the opportunity to do that every year. Um, Here's the one thing that we don't often talk about with vacations, but they are kind of fraught with peril because vacations bring with them expectations, right? And all expectations can be unmet. I mean, think about it. What's the one thing that everyone asks you when you come back for vacation? How was your trip? How are you going to answer that? How are you going to answer? How was your trip? It's all going to depend on what you expected that trip to, to be, right? Because if you expected, um, you know, if, if you wanted your vacation to be you getting a lot of reading done, but you didn't get any reading done, was it a good trip? Probably not. If, if you expected to get a lot of, like, you going to the beach, so you expected to get a lot of sitting and relaxing on the beach, but it rained the whole time, not a good trip. Right? If you expected, you know, maybe, maybe um, you know, you've got young kids and, you're, and you know, you're, you're always at work. You're thinking, like, I want to, my vacation is going to be me sleeping in. We've got young kids. That's already a fantasy anyway. But, but let's say they got sick. And so you're up all night long anyway. Not a good trip, right? See, our expectations of what something is going to be becomes the method or the means by which we judge it. Being on mission is the same. We've, been, we've spent weeks now talking about what it is to be on mission, that, that God sends us on mission. We, if you haven't been here for those, you can always hit those up on the website, right? We've been talking about what it means for God to send out his people on mission. But how are we going to judge then if that's actually happening? What is, what's our expectation of it? What's it supposed to look like? That's what this passage kind of hits us with this morning. And so we're going to look at this in two ways. There's an outline in your bulletin, bulletin uh, if that's helpful for you. If not, just leave it. But maybe, maybe you're a note taker, so that would help. We're going to look at um, being taken out, or the question of being taken out. And then we're going to look at being sent out. Okay, Taken out and sent out. Let's get started. So let me, let me hit a little background. So this is John's Gospel. Um, it's written by... Well, John, John is, uh, many, many of you will know this, Jesus had 12 disciples, 12 apostles that he sent out, and um, John was the youngest of these, so he's like everyone's kid brother, um, but not only was he part of the 12, which would have been, you know, the, the 12 people that Jesus spent the most time with while he was on earth, but even uh, more than that, he was part of the three, which, so within that 12, Jesus had three dudes that he spent the most time with, it was Peter, James and James' little brother, John, okay? These were like the three guys who got to hang out the most with Jesus. They were up on the mountain of transfiguration, which Jesus, like, cloud came around, Jesus shining. There's, like, Moses and Elijah standing there. No one knows what to do. Peter says, let's put up some tents, because that's 
That's what Peter, he just says things that are crazy. But uh, no one really knew what to do. But J- uh, John got to see this. And John's gospel, which gospel is just kind of like a, a, a history of a narrative, a story of the life of Jesus or the ministry of Jesus. John is super explicit about why he's writing this. He says in the midst of this gospel, he says, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that believing you might have life in his name. And what he says there is huge. And maybe you didn't notice. Because he said that his purpose in writing this was not uh, that you would think this is a cool story. It was not that you would follow the teachings of Jesus. Did you see that? That's not what he said. What he said was that you would believe something about Jesus. That Jesus is the Christ. And in doing that, in believing something about Jesus, believing about Jesus, you would have life in, your, in his name. Now we'll get to the, more of that as we get further into this passage. That's super important. That, that, that's in fact the essence of Christianity. So where we're at in John 17, this is the end of John's gospel. Um, Jesus has uh, done the Lord's Supper, like the Last Supper. He's done that. Um, in John's gospel, we see he's also done a foot washing. He's washed his disciples' feet. That freaked everybody out. That would freak you out too if we decided to do that, right? Because it's feet. It's weird. It was even weirder then because everyone walked in sandals through, basically like walking through a, a, a farm with sandals on, right? If you're walking through a farm where there's a bunch of animals and you have sandals on, think about how your feet are. It's a little gross. And uh, Jesus washed his feet. Um, Judas, Judas has already booked it out of there. He's decided to go get the popo and come back and get Jesus, right? Like he's out, he's getting the police, they're going to come arrest Jesus. Uh, and Jesus has just completed speaking to his disciples about what is about to come. He's told them things like, I'm going to be taken out. I'm, I'm leaving, but don't worry. I'm going to, it's good for me to leave, which is, I wish I had time to talk about that. Uh, he's told them what's coming, and now he's praying publicly. And so this is, this, what we just read in John 17 is part of what is called the high priestly prayer. Okay, it's Jesus praying to the Father, his last prayer before he, he is about to head out and apart from his people. And there's this little phrase that's repeated in this little snippet of the prayer, both in verse 14 and verse 16, that's, that's important. Uh, he says it in verse 14 for the first time. So look there, he says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. Now, if, you're, if you've been a Christian a while, maybe you've heard the phrase that Christians are in the world and not of the world, right? This is kind of where that comes from. Uh, generally, most Christians, here's a little secret, if you're not a Christian, Christians don't know what that means, but we say it over and over again, and that's part of what we do so that we sound like we know what we're doing, but we don't know what it means. But here's, let me, let me break this down. Hopefully it's going to make sense. When Jesus says to, uh, when he's praying and he says, that I've given them your word, what he means is I've, I've communicated to them the gospel. Okay, Jesus has communicated to them their need for a rescuer. They've received that. And the effect has been, apparently, that the world has hated them. Now, let me define that really quickly. Because a lot of times, and John will go back and forth in his gospel when he uses this word world. He does it a couple times in this, in this little snippet in different ways. Most of the time when John uses the word world, he does not mean every person distributively, right? Like he's not some kind of psycho-paranoid dude who thinks that every person in the world individually hates Christians. That's not true. 
Okay? Uh, and, and that's not what he's saying. So l- let me... Um, in John's gospel, often the word world is a technical term for what's like the collective state of the world. Okay? Let me explain that. In the, the Bible is clear on the fact that the world is messed up. You don't have to watch the evening news to get that. Uh, the Bible is very honest about that. And, and it says that it's messed up because we're messed up. And we were made, humanity was made for this dependent relationship on God that was marked by loving him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Okay? Maybe you've heard that before. But we betrayed him. We turned away from him. Uh, we, we decided to love other things, to love ourselves, in fact. And that's what the Bible calls sin. It, we broke relationship with him, and when we did, everything changed. Now, when I say God and the word sin in the same sentence, most of us automatically, word association, go to the word judgment, right? And that's true. There is guilt. Betrayals bring guilt, and that is, that is part of it. Um, but that's not all that comes. When we turn from God, uh, the Bible teaches us that our very natures were changed. Not just we did something, but we, we changed, we turned. We, we are now bent away from him. We were made for dependence on him, and now we're bent towards independence by nature, not by nurture. We don't learn independence from God. We're born into it, right? And any of you who have young kids know this. They look real sweet. Sorry, Cubbies. They look real sweet right now. That boy is awesome. You will not have to teach him the word no, though. Right? He's going to get that, and, he's gonna, and, and so that's part of, part of what it means. We were, we were born now by nature. We are independent from God instead of dependent. So now, by nature, we believe that we both can be and have to be independent from God. We can be because we think we're great. We have to be because he can't be trusted. Okay? We call this brokenness. And so when all of our individual brokenness... My brokenness, your brokenness, the person's next to you broken. When all of our brokenness comes together, the Bible calls that the world, right? Our individual brokenness, the Bible often calls the flesh. But when you put all of that together, we get the world in that collective sense of brokenness. It is, it's like a, a presupposition that humanity functions in naturally now that's opposed to God. Okay? With me? So when Jesus says that his disciples are not of the world, what he's not saying is that they're not human, nor is he saying that they somehow no longer live on earth. What he's meaning is they no longer fundamentally belong to that collective anymore. It's like when Neo took the red pill, right? In the Matrix, Neo takes the red pill. He is now fundamentally not part of the Matrix. He gets spit out of that nasty gel cocoon thing, you know? And, like, he's no longer part of the Matrix. Christians function under a different presupposition because Jesus does. We are not of the world because he's not of the world, okay? All right, now, if that's the case, if that's the case, one would assume that if God has a people and that people no longer function with that same presupposition, that we no longer function, that we must, that we can and we must be independent, that God would naturally, especially if that collective presupposition hates the idea of the other, that he's going to take us out of that, right? I mean, that would make sense. Why would you want to leave people around others that hate them? Like, why would, you, why would you do that? But look what Jesus says. He says something different. He says, I do not ask you to take them out of the world. I do not ask you to take them out of the world. 
but that you keep them from the evil one. Okay, now stick with me for a second because this is way different than we tend to think. This is where the Bible really does blow our categories. When we see, when we hear someone talk about, someone who's like super down on the world, like really just down on the way things are, especially when, when that, that we're dealing in religious categories, the hope that comes from that on being really negative about the world is that you're going to be taken out of it. So, um, in Buddhism, right? In Buddhism, all of life is suffering. All of life is suffering in Buddhism. And the hope is to be, to attain enlightenment, not so that you can go exist in a, like, lovely little realm where there is no suffering. Buddhists doesn't, don't believe that there is such a place. The hope is to cease to exist. To attain enlightenment so that you completely cease to exist. No more, no more reincarnation, right? The, the point is to get out of the suffering, and that makes sense. In fact, many of us have grown up in churches in which that's basically the hope of Christianity, right? We just got to get out of this place, get out of everything, get up to heaven where everything's going to be great. We're just kind of biding our time. But Jesus says, I'm not asking you to remove them from the world. What I am going to ask is that you guard them from the evil one. Okay, now, if you're not a Christian, we just entered Weirdsville because I just said evil one. And, like, here's the thing. As much as the Bible recognizes that we are broken, recognizes the flesh, recognizes that the, the collective world is broken, the, the world, it also recognizes this personal embodiment of evil, a, a personal spiritual force that means for our harm. Sometimes it's called the evil one, sometimes it's called Satan, other times it's called the devil, right? Uh, that shouldn't, like, totally weird us out. Again, like most folks who have, a, who have a really hard time with the idea of Satan or idea with the devil have no problem with angels. So it's like, I'm okay with good forces of spiritual forces, but I'm not okay with bad spiritual forces. And some of that's because of the fact that we've, we've grown up in, in uh, you know, uh, many of us, especially if you're my age or, or like slightly older, we've grown up in like horror movie land, right? Ever since the exorcist, we have a certain idea of what that spiritual force of evil must be. Jesus is going to blow that out of the water here in a second, but it's not as hard to believe as you might think. Jesus wants us not taken out of the world, but protected from this evil one. And then look at verse 17 really quick, because this kind of fleshes out how he wants that protection to work. Jesus says to the Lord, sanctify them in your truth, or by your truth, your word is truth. Okay, here's how this all fits together. Remember that I said that humanity turned away from God from the very beginning, like uh, that, that we had turned away from him. Now, the way that worked, we're told in Genesis chapter 3, is that humanity believed a lie. We believed a lie. Betraying God ultimately wasn't about an action. It was about an attitude. That action stemmed from the attitude. We were made to depend on him, but we came to believe that he couldn't be trusted, that he wasn't worth our trust, that that he was actually not loving us. He was He was trying to hold us back. He was trying to get us. Like, he was not worthy of our trust. That he's, you know, restricting us. And so we believed a lie and acted out of that lie. And that lie was perpetrated by Satan, by the devil, by the evil one. So here's how this all comes together. Being guarded from the evil one, okay, ultimately is not about holy water. Right? In, in horror films, being guarded from the evil one is like the evil one is coming to like 
hurt you and like fires coming at you and there's going to be like screams and darkness and shocking things. But in the Bible, being guarded from the evil one is about not believing the lie. It's about being guarded from the lie. And that is why Jesus asks that we be sanctified by God's truth. That we be sanctified by God's truth. To be sanctified is to be set apart for God. For, so Jesus is basically asking God to keep Christians in the world, but to set them right. To restore us to himself, to, to change us fundamentally from being betrayers of God to being those who depend on God. But from being those who believe the lie to those who are sanctified in the truth because we've been transformed by it. Okay? Now here's why all this matters. Let's talk about being sanctified by the truth real quick. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me make a couple theological points before I get to the meat of this. When Jesus talks about God's word being the truth... He's talking about the Bible, okay? He's talking about the Bible. Now, I, I love this scene. There's the, maybe you've seen the movie Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade. There's a scene at the beginning where um, Dr. Jones is teaching in his archaeology class, and he's writing on the board, and he says, the archaeology is about facts, the search for facts, not the search for truth. If you want truth, you can go down to Dr. So-and-so's philosophy class down the road. So it's setting up this, there's facts, and then there's truth, that's ridiculous, okay? That's ridiculous. Um, there's, there's truth. Um, truth includes facts. It's truth. Okay? So Jesus makes a claim, and he makes this claim in the Gospels over and over again. The Bible is God's word, and that the Bible is true. In fact, just a few chapters previous to this in John 10, he says that the Bible says this, and God's word cannot be broken, meaning it, it can't cease to be true. Now, we may not like what it says all the time. And let's be honest. Even if you're a Christian here in this place, come on. There, there's plenty of times we don't like what the Bible says. We may not like what it says all the time, but if you're a Christian, a follower of Jesus, then you, understand, you need to understand that our Lord considers the Bible true, not helpful. It's true. It is the inerrant word of God. Okay? So being sanctified by God's word means the Bible. But right now, the, many of us are confused or, or at least puzzled because... Um, we think of the Bible as kind of a collection of sayings or some outmoded rules. But the Bible fundamentally is not, um, is not a collection of heroic stories. It has some of that. It's not even a collection of rules, though there are those. It's a story. It's a story about God and it's a story about us. It's the true story about God instead of the lie that we believe naturally. If you read the Bible and read it honestly, what you'll find is a God who, out of, who though, though betrayed commits at the point of his betrayal, at the point at which people had turned away from him, spit in his face and said, you don't love me, I'm going to go do what I... He had, he had not only given them everything, except one thing. He would commanded them to delight in everything, but this one thing. And their thought was, you don't love me. He, so at the point of that betrayal... At the point of that betrayal, he doesn't destroy humanity. He commits to saving us. He commits to saving us. And so what we get in, in the Bible is a God who loves us. He loved us and promised to set things right. He promised to deal with our betrayal. And so when you and I view God as this despot 
who is like one step from squishing us. As soon as he gets, he's like waiting over us going, you just, I'm just waiting. And like, aha, you know, like if that's the God that we think exists or uh, when we view God as someone who expects us to earn our keep with him all the time, as if, as if we are, he, he's an employer and we are kind of laboring hard to get something from him. We are living in the lie. We're living in the lie. And so if you aren't a Christian here this morning, here's what you need to take away from this section. The Bible teaches us, and Jesus says it right here, that my problem and your problem ultimately is not about behavior. It's not about a behavior. Because you can believe that lie and think you need to earn God's favor and work really hard and be really moral, or you could believe that lie and think, I don't want to have anything to do with him, I'm going to run the other way. Because God hates me anyway. But both of those begin because of independence born from the lie. So if you have been to church, maybe maybe this is your first time in church in like a long time, and the churches that you remember being a part of, that you grew up in, kind of taught either explicitly or implicitly that, um, that, that God's message to you, the church's message to you, the Bible's message to you, is you've got to work harder they were lying to you. That is, that is not the message of the scriptures. That is not the gospel. The issue is about turning from that lie. Now, if you're a Christian this morning, here's what I would say to you. <laughs> it means a ton of things to be sanctified by the truth, but here's, here's, it can't mean anything less than this. Jesus seems to assume that the Bible to his people is going to be central. Central. Not peripheral. Central. It is, it is very hard um, to live according to a story that you've never read. Right? It's very hard to, to live in light of a story that you may hear snippets of on Sunday morning and that's about it. Very difficult. Every day you and I wake up in, a, in the world and the world communicates a lie to us that we still have a tendency to believe. And so the only way to combat that is to spend time reading and studying God's Word. So if you've never done that regularly before, I have this great tool that I'd love to introduce you to called the Community Bible Reading Plan, CBR. It comes with this neat little notebook. I've got a bunch of them. I'd love to introduce you to that. But however, however you do it, we need to be in God's Word and shaped by it. Okay? Now, that, that, that's the question being taken out. Now let's look at being sent out, because here's the thing. If Jesus left us there and he just moved on, what we would think is... The way that I'm going to be right with God is to read the Bible, right? I'm going to get sanctified by the truth, so I need to just imbibe as much of the truth as possible. Um, But that's not the case. And and if he left us there, the other thing that we would do is be wondering what this has to do with mission and why why is Rick preaching on this passage in this series. But let's, let's get to that, okay? Look at verse 19, because this is awesome. Jesus says, For their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be, might be sanctified in truth, all right? Now, I'm going to get technical for a second. So, that phrase, for their sake, in, in Greek is awesome. And you're like, Greek? Why are we talking about Greek? Because the New Testament was written in Greek. It wasn't written in the King's English. Uh, I know that you may have been taught something different. The King James Version is kind of the inspired version of the Bible. However, 
It was not written in English. Um, John didn't know English. English didn't exist at the time, okay? So uh, it, it was written in Greek. And that phrase, for their sake, it, it can be translated for their sake, but it often means in the place of, in their place, okay? And when Jesus says consecrate, that is the same word that he's later going to be, that he says in the, this very same sentence, in this very same sentence, he says, for their sake, I consecrate myself. They may be sanctified in truth. That word consecrate and sanctified are the same word. There's a little word play going on here. What the translators are doing is making it clear what's going on. New Testament scholars will tell you that what Jesus is talking about is he's saying, I am about to do something. I am setting myself apart in their place so that they might be set apart in the truth. And what is Jesus about to do? He's about to go to the cross. He's about to go to the cross. What Jesus is saying is, I'm, gonna, I'm about to go do something, and it will result in people being set apart for God. So here's how this fits. We, be, we believe the lie. We betrayed God. And we're fundamentally changed. Okay? Remember that? Fundamentally changed. In other words, we're now bent in, towards independence instead of dependence on God. And that means that we're stuck. We're stuck in that independence. In other places, the Bible calls this a death. The Apostle Paul says that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God promised to rescue us. That is why Jesus came, and that's what he talked about here. Remember that guilt thing? I said that's what we all think about. We think sin and God, guilt is the immediate, uh, or judgment is the immediate word association. Jesus came to bear that. Now, I know that's distasteful to us, but forgiveness, forgiveness is always based on that. Whether or not we really come to grips with this, forgiveness is always, forgiveness is always the betrayed person bearing the weight of the betrayal for the repentant betrayer. It's always what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not making offense disappear. Offenses don't disappear. Forgiveness is the one who is betrayed saying, I'm willing to bear this cost instead of you. And the one who did the betraying saying, I'm sorry, I'm turning away from this. And that's what Jesus did. In Jesus, God came and bore the weight of our betrayal. That's what the cross is about. So listen, because this is huge. Jesus is saying this before he gets arrested, before he dies on the cross. It would be very easy for many of us, if not most of us, especially our culture, to see the cross of Jesus as this like very tragic event that cut short a very promising ministry. Right? Jesus had this following, and all of a sudden, like, man, stuff happens, and he's hanging on a Roman cross. Think of what could have happened had Jesus not died. Right? But it isn't. Jesus went to the cross intentionally. He says in this gospel, I lay down my life. No one takes it from me. I do it on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again, which means I can... Death isn't going li- to win over me. I'm going to lay it down, and then I'm going to take it up. It's going to be awesome. All right? Jesus went to the cross intentionally to rescue people for himself, and he did it because he loves them. Okay? That is what being set apart for God, uh, rescued, saved, whatever you want to call it, uh, that's, that's why all of those things aren't about what we do. Jesus goes to the cross, he sets himself apart in our place so that 
in order that. Like you just throw for the purpose of our being set apart in truth. Okay? In theology, this is called substitutionary atonement. Jesus takes the place of sinners so that sinners get the place of Jesus. It's beautiful. It's the gospel. It isn't about reading. It's about a rescuer. It's about placing our faith in the God who loves us and thus being sanctified, being set apart in that truth that God loves us and is committed to us. Okay? But, is, but once that happens, we're sent out on a mission. Look down at verses 18 and then, and then in verse 20, Jesus says, As you, that's God the Father, as you sent me into the world, now I am going to send them. Okay, what does this mean? Well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus is sending you and I into the world to die on a cross for the sake of sinners, right? That's not what that means. That was a single, unrepeatable, finished event. What it does mean is that there's a character to the sending of Jesus that we are to be like. But now the easy thing, the easy out, as soon as you see Jesus say this, is that, well, I mean, he is kind of talking about those 11 disciples that are left, right? I mean, they're the only ones there. When he says, I, I'm sending them, he's talking about them, right? Except at verse 20, he says, I don't ask for these only. And then you're like, ah, stink. Like, I was almost out. He says, I don't ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, okay? So this mission that Jesus is sending his disciples on is not a one-off. It's not like, well, great, the apostles did that. Whew, I don't have to worry about that thing. It's, it is a continual mission that will look like his. And so if you are a Christian here this morning, Jesus died to rescue you from your sin, but for this mission, And that's even spelled out in verse 20, right? Because their mission is for others who don't believe. Saying, I'm not going to just pray for the 11 disciples that are left. I'm going to pray for those who will believe in me because of what they said. And that then continues generation after generation. The mission is for others who do not believe to place their faith in Jesus, the rescuer, who will then go to others who do not believe to place their faith in Jesus, the rescuer. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jason Bailey showed us that last week. And now we are sent, just as Jesus was sent, on the same mission. Now, let me conclude by talking about the method, because this, as you sent me, so I'm sending them thing, needs to be fleshed out. How was Jesus sent? Right? How was how Jesus sent? Like, that's, that's the important thing. If, if we're going to be sent just as he was sent, then we better be very clear on how he was sent. Let me suggest a few ways that our mission is to reflect his. First, our mission is to be in love. Now, I was tempted to go to the next one first. I got really convicted of the fact that that, that wasn't the first thing. The first thing in the mission of God is love. Jesus was sent in love. Jesus was sent by the Father in love, not to make us lovable. And listen, if you've grown up in in evangelical churches, if you've grown up in churches that are really big on declaring the sinfulness of humanity, which is a right thing to declare, this is a place where you're going to struggle. Because Jesus did not come to make you lovable. Jesus did not come to make you lovable. Jesus came 
because he loved you. God sent his son, his only son. Why? Because he so loved the world. Love in the Bible is not, you know, love in the Bible isn't squishy. Uh, And it's not, it's not uh, kind of hands off. Love is about seeing someone flourish. To love someone scripturally is to seek their best. And ultimately, people cannot flourish apart from a reconciled relationship with God. And so, if, if, if you're a Christian and you think you're loving your friends and neighbors by never, by never ever talking to them about Jesus, you're not loving them at all. Like you're kind of hating them, honestly. But we cannot go to others in the way that Jesus came without doing so, first and foremost, out of love. So first, our mission needs to be in love. Second, it needs to be incarnational. Okay? That's a churchy word that means taking the form of those we go to. Listen, Jesus is God, but he took to himself a human nature. He became fully human and fully God at the same time. Weird calculus, but it's true. So even, even here, Jesus says, I'm not taking them out of the world. And so to reach people, to, to be sent as Jesus is sent, will mean to actually be where people are. To like engaging people where they are, speaking in a language they understand. In other words, you aren't sent like Jesus if you simply parachute into a community, toss a few gospel grenades in there, and get out. Right? Like, I'm out. Like, before you get hurt. (laughs) You know what I mean? Uh, At the same way, you aren't being incarnational if you move into a community, build a little fortress around yourself to keep yourself and your kids safe, and never interact with anyone around you. We actually have to be where people are, engaging them where they are. Okay? So first it's in love, second it's incarnational, third it's in word and deed. Now, don't misunderstand me here, because it would be very easy to misunderstand me here. The gospel is a message. It is word content. You cannot preach the gospel without words unless you know sign language. Okay? Because the gospel is a message. That being said... That being said, Jesus came preaching and healing. He came preaching the gospel and binding up people in love. They aren't set opposed to one another. They're a natural outworking of each other. Okay? So it has to be in word and deed. But lastly, I'll try and cover this one quick. It's costly. To be sent the way Jesus is sent is going to be costly. Okay? To be on mission like Jesus, but to think you will get out of that mission without any scratches is nuts. It's nuts. Just because I said you aren't dying for people's sins does not mean you're not going to be hurt by them. It doesn't mean you're not going to be wounded by them. But here's where the gospel kicks in. Because Jesus died in our place, because he set himself apart in our place so that we might be set apart, right? Because we are given a gift of salvation, a gift, which means we didn't earn it and we can't lose it. That means that there is nothing that can be taken from us, no harm that can befall us that compares to him, and nothing that can take away the ultimate thing that he has given to us. The gospel frees us to be other-centered, and it must. Not just it can, but it must. 
It must. If it doesn't, we need to ask, are we being shaped by the truth? Are we being sanctified by the truth? Or are we still being set apart for the lie? That i got to look out for myself because God doesn't love me. So what's our expectation of mission? Well, this passage teaches it has to look like Jesus. But here's the other thing that's promised here. Because I, what I just said, and especially ending with the fact that it's going to be costly, can lead a lot of us to go, especially if you're more prone to this personality-wise, and some of us in this room are, where we think, yes, I'm going to go, and I'm going to suffer, and it's going to be awesome, and God's going to use it for his glory. and, uh, and like, But we miss what's in verse 13, where he says that he's doing all of this so that his joy would be fulfilled in us. It's going to be full of joy. This mission isn't a slog because we're being made like our Savior. And he was full of joy in his mission. It is a mission where we are being conformed to the truth that God is worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our love. He's worthy of our dependence. And it's then living that truth in the world by joining and seeing others come into it as well. Would you pray with me? Jesus, just as you were sent in the world, you send us into the world. We've talked about this now for a couple of months. At the end of the day, unless we see you as great and glorious, we will never go to others. Unless we see the beauty of the fact that you have set yourself apart in our place, we will never be willing to go to others. Because we will always feel like we need to still protect ourselves. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us in this room, whether we've been Christians a long time or we're not Christians yet, that you would make the gospel huge to us this morning. That you would let that truth be what we take with us. That you, in our place, have consecrated yourself so that we might be sanctified in truth that you took our place so that we might be with you. And out of that security then, Lord, let us go. Out of that love, out of that faithfulness of our Savior, let us go. Rouse us from our slumber, Lord. Some of us in this room are very sleepy when it comes to things of God. We want to we play Christian on Sunday and then just kind of pretend that someone else does the other stuff. Rouse us from our slumber. Wake us to see the world in need. And send us out on mission with you to be where you are. And we ask all these things in Christ's holy name.